This is In Conversation from Network Reorient in association with Reorient Journal and the Critical Muslim Studies Project. We aim to explore the post-Western, reconnect the Islamosphere. In our final episode of Season 3, Salman Said and Abdul Karim Vakil are reflecting on 10 years since the publication of their edited volume, Thinking Through Islamophobia, and questions of definitions of Islamophobia. Abdul Karim, it's been almost 10 years since we worked together on Thinking Through Islamophobia. And I just thought it would be useful for us to um, revisit the book, but also to talk about how Islamophobia has um, evolved, uh, both the conversation about the concept and obviously the concept and the work that it's been doing in, in the world today. Uh, reflections and also thinking about the future of, that, uh, of the Islamophobia. I suppose the one way to start would be really to thinking about something that you and I have always had been very resistant to as being the whole idea of a definition of Islamophobia. And I remember that within the kind of discussions we had around thinking through Islamophobia was really the uh, skepticism or agnosticism about the whole category of a definition or one definition of Islamophobia. But ironically, we now find ourselves in a situation that we have been really involved with the um, definition of Islamophobia, um, advocating it, helping to construct it. Um, it might seem like a strange turn of events. I wonder whether you would like to um, explain to our listeners how um, gamekeepers turned approaches, <laughs> or really the other way around. Well, first of all, it's great to be able to take stock 10 years on from the publication of Thinking Through. But I think you're quite right. It would be good to start right at the deep end with the question of definition, since it's so topical at the moment. So I think that rather than merely indifferent or even skeptical about the definition per se, I think it's much more that we were cautious about some common misunderstandings around what a definition is for, and to some extent almost an obsession with the definition that gained gained pace such that by the 2018 publication in England of the second Runnymede report, there was almost a sort of expectation that a, a definition was the next necessary step. So I think that basically there were three things we were concerned about. One was the idea, which is probably the most fundamentally problematic one, that the definition in and of itself would solve anything. I think the second one was the idea that um, sort of the, the core and the measure of a definition is whether it would be watertight in court. And so a, a sort of a fixation on a legal definition. And the third one is probably that, um, and this is what I think is politically and strategically most naive about those kinds of expectations, was that the definition was the highest priority. So I, th I think that these are the three things that we had a, a bit of concern about. And it might be worth us discussing a little bit more, explaining a little bit more about what our concerns around this were. So I think you and I would kind of agree that uh, the most important thing about a definition, like about a concept, is the work that it does. And that it does this through contestation. So we'll, we'll probably want to pick up on that in, in a moment. Um, and the notion that what a definition really has to do, as far as we're concerned and in all the work we've done, is to really f 
provide a vocabulary around which a, a conversation can can take place, right? So, now, um, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah. go on, absolutely. Go ahead. No, the only thing I wanted to add to that was, I mean, I agree with you entirely. There is also another point, which I think is related in all three of these, these things, is the very idea of a definition seemed to suggest a certain kind of essentialist um, categorization of the concept. And what we've used in our work, some more explicitly than others, has been the uh, with continuing category of family resemblances. Um, and one of the things that I remember is that certainly is thinking about Islamophobia as a family resemblance would avoid some of the pitfalls of a definition, but also would depend upon multiple usages of the concept so that people get to know how to use it in a range of situations, but those situations would be have would have a series of overlapping um, but not um, not the same convergences. Um, in other words, simply a series of overlapping resemblances rather than something that could be related to one kernel, one particular meaning. Yeah. I think that... So it seems to me that... Yeah, that goes so, to the heart of three things that we were also trying to do, which was uh, many of the definitions that we see being proposed by colleagues flow out of very specific areas of work, hate crime, media, um, international contexts of, of war and, and uh, securitization and so on. And as you said, one of our concerns was to have um, a, a tool that sufficiently captures the ability to address each of these contexts without being reduced to them. And that was important because one of the things about our book was the global aspect of looking at Islamophobia. And so not to be uh, born out of, for example, specific legal contexts or specific historical contexts, such that, such that the concept then couldn't travel well or couldn't apply to many different situations. So we know that Islamophobia that applies to, for example, situations of street racism is not the same as the one that applies to the kinds of institutionalized systems of securitization that Muslims go through in airports. So what is the kind of definition that could do the work in those uh, different contexts, right? Um, the, but but why, why don't you pick up from where you were? Yeah. No, I think that's, that's I mean, look, I, 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 for me, the challenge has always been the work that a definition can do, whether what does a definition mean? And the more that I've been engaged with this process, especially around the whole debate, um, which we'll probably get into a bit later on, um, with the um, all-party on British Muslims um, attempt to defining Islamophobia, has been, one hand, what they thought the definition would do. And on the other hand, what I thought the definitions cannot do. So clearly... The argument was that if you had a definition, we would have clarity and we would have uh, unity based upon that definition of responses and taking action against um, Islamophobia. But it seems to me that we should be thinking about definitions as forms of understanding rather than um, 
very accurate and precise uh, descriptions of an entity. And while there is obviously a relationship between a description of an entity and the forms of understanding, I would say to you, they're not identical. Uh, forms of understanding exceed the descriptions um, and they reflect an engagement between um, you know, social groupings and the description rather than the description itself, which stands on its own. So there's an element of a relationship between reader and text in the form of understanding, which I think sometimes the focus on a definition tries to re, uh, dissolve that relationship and see that if you have the definition in black and white, anyone could read it and come to the same conclusion as anyone else. Yeah. Absolutely. So, <laughs> again, there's about three different things going on there. One is the sort of expectation that once you have the definition, it would be like a litmus test. Almost anything that happened, you'd bring that definition, it would be like the parting of the waters. You'd know clearly whether it is Islamophobia or not. And of course, one can understand the desire for such a thing, but we also know that whether it's racism, sexism, ageism, ableism, whatever you are talking about, it has never worked that way. It gives a, a standard for the conversation to develop, but then each and every single time, and especially the higher the profile of the case, the more public contestation around it occurs. So, you know, a member of the royal family, uh, a high prominent politician makes a particular remark, and the next day, and for weeks on end, there will be a discussion, is this racism, isn't this racism, does this constitute sexism or not? So in other words, we're very familiar with the notion that what definitions that do exist for all these other things, whether it's sexism or racism, do, is they set a, a benchmark. But the conversation then is the contestation that takes place in public discourse around each and every particular instance of, 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 what, of what happens. So I guess it, one of the things that you were saying when you mentioned the APPG, it's, I can I suppose it could be worth dividing up two different steps here. One is we are both saying, I believe, that the social circulation of a standard is essentially what we're getting at. It's, it's creating the kind of vocabulary and the sense of how to use that vocabulary in social situations that matters. And for that, I think the single most important thing to sort of bear in mind, which is so easy to forget, is that it's taken uh, years of work within institutions to embed particular standards of equality, uh, what today uh, increasingly takes the form of uh, diversity and inclusion. But behind that were decades of anti-racist struggle. And behind that was a century at least of anti-colonial mobilizations. So all of this went Absolutely. into the making of what we now take as sort of... Um, regulatory processes within institutions, right? Yeah. I think the point to bear in mind, and I think we'll return to this, of course, is the idea of these regulatory institution, uh, processes exist in the framework of particular types of um, states, particular types of social orders, particular types of political orders, political structures. And one of the things about Islamophobia, of course, is that it is no longer reducible to a something that occurs in want of a better world, um, the global north, or 
were, you know, the Western plutocracies. And this is one of the bigger changes. Now, I think our book was one of the first books to talk about Islamophobia globally. Uh, because up till that point, and I say up to that point, um, you know, there hadn't, the, the explosion of literature on Islamophobia hadn't really happened by 2010. I think it's a subsequent development. But what you had was the idea of Islamophobia being uh, encased primarily in states and political communities which thought of themselves as liberal, democratic, in some very deep and profound way. And as a result, the debate about Islamophobia tended to focus on two things. One, on what I call uh, post-colonial ethnically marked populations, which others tend to call more easily immigrants, because the whole idea was there was an immigration into these spaces uh, which transform homogeneity into heterogeneity. And secondly, the focus on media representation. The idea was that the media should be, or was expected to be, a neutral space, a liberal space par excellence, where ideas about, uh, you know, a marketplace of ideas, yeah. in other words. It, and the problem, sorry. But perhaps it's, it's, it's worth saying how that reflects a sort of broader picture, which is that talk about Muslims kind of emerges initially out of um, problematization of immigrant communities. So uh, studying Muslims in Western contexts comes out of a, initially, in fact, much, much of the discipline consists of sociologists and anthropologists that used to study Muslims over there, suddenly starting to study Muslims over here, but with the same methods that they used for, for over there, yeah, and often absolutely. transposing as if Muslims carry their, baggage, their, their culture in their baggage and then just open up in the, in the, in the new country and they can be uh, studied along the same lines. And with the media, I think that one of the things that underlines and, and connects with what you're saying is the notion that it was a sort of um, demographic increase that suddenly makes Muslims a presence, as opposed to understanding that what is taking place in this visibilization isn't purely a demographic one. It's a problematization of a category, a category that emerges out of a rejection of the sort of ethnic categorizations and the identification as an immigrant into the name Muslim. And so Islamophobia is, is irreducible to that transformation in the category of immigrant into Muslim in the first place. But because it's the, the scholarly production is centered in this Western phenomenon, then it takes for granted that what is at stake is, as you were saying, an immigrant minority, an uppity one at that, that sort of uh, transboards the boundaries of the accepted public discourse of liberal societies, the division between the private and the public, the religious and the political, the, the, the embedded histories of each of these states in their relationship with their churches, and how this becomes, as we found out for ourselves, a sort of code for the return of religion, right? Yeah. Now, but I think here is a key text that I want to sort of pick up on, and, I, and it's something that I've thought about, but I haven't yet written about. So, 
I don't, maybe I want to start another way. Maybe I want to ask your opinion about it. When we talk about um, representations of Muslimness in the media, very often the more critical anthropologists and ethnographers will search their bookshelves for Edward Said's Orientalism. And the move will be made that this is Orientalism, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. We would all agree that there's Orientalism. But of course, a part of um, Edward Said's trilogy at the time was a book on how um, covering Islam, how the media representations of covering Islam. Now, what is interesting in that book is really the playing off of Orientalism and the idea of focus mainly on the uh, events around the Islamic Revolution in Iran and looking at media representations and the problematizations of that. But as we both know, Saeed's relationship to Muslimness was very complicated. Both to Islam and to Muslimness, yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes. It was incredibly complicated. And I think those complications come out quite well in the book covering Islam, where you get the impression that he still reads this uh, without looking at the critical epistemological work that the category of Muslim and the category of Islam begins to do around about the time of the book and sees it more in terms of simply a question of misrepresentation of uh, a kind of... a different ethnicities, different immigrant communities almost. Underlying that, you get the idea that part of it is that they read these ethnic communities through the prism of religion rather than the prism of culture or ethnicity, which is considered to be deeper and more profoundly true than their religious configuration. Absolutely. So you, you, what you've unpacked here could be an entire conversation that we should have at some point. So in, in other words, um, I, I, Maybe the next <laughs> years. I, think, I think both of us would be very, well, if I can <laughs> suggest this, both of us would be among the first to resist the urge now so enshrined in the literature that when the number name of Said comes up, you have to point out all the different ways in which his book fails, in which uh, in which uh, Orientalism fails to make the mark. And you know, there's there's people who have written 800-page books trying to point out all the different problems with Said that will be forgotten as a footnote in scholarship, while Said's book will continue to be uh, on the front of our bookshelves. What? What, among the many things that Orientalism did, apart from actually naming the discipline of Orientalism to such an extent that it became shameful to hold the kinds of positions that otherwise were transparently held with, with, with great uh, uh, pride by the likes of Bernard Lewis and, and, and so on, is to actually have signposted the transformation of the academies and of scholarship with voices from the global south. And I think that that, that is an, uh, one of the lasting uh, contributions of that book. So that when we say that it's a, it's a founding text in post-colonial studies, that signals the journey uh, uh, of, of the arrival at the center uh, of scholarship. But it is unquestionably the case that regardless of all that we find that Orientalism did the work 
the Orientalism, the book, did the work that it had to do, is that Edward Said had a problem with religion and that the conflation of the categories for him of worldliness and secularism, of, of the intellectual position that is defensible in a world that otherwise becomes problematic, is that religion for which Islam comes also to stand is his inability to overcome. And I think that one of the triangulations that is so good to do with Edward Said is, as you said, to read Orientalism in relation to covering Islam, but also to the work on Palestine and to see how landmark essays of his, like the permission to narrate, are about the question of agency in the reframing of the terms of discourse that situate the victim as, the, as, as to blame for their own problems. And I think that's at the heart of what we try to do with Islamophobia as well. No, I absolutely agree. Sorry. I was actually, that just reminded me of a tiny little remark that I wanted to make about what you said about the way that uh, thinking through Islamophobia landed in 2010. I think that it was also a conjunction of two things, and it's a sort of um, note of modesty and humility on our part to sort of say there were two kinds of transitions that that thinking through Islamophobia hit at the same time. One, which I think we were very much at the forefront of, of, was to shift the discussion from questions of evidence and empiricism and, and the, the, the eternal battles over the name to a conceptual discussion. And I think that is unquestionably the case. And, and the second was a sort of moment of arrival of shifting the discussions from nation-state framings to broader kinds of, of discussion that were starting to make the mark, especially in relation to two things. One is being able to discuss Islamophobia within Muslim contexts and Muslim-perpetrated mm. uh, Islamophobia. And second is the question of thinking um, of Islamophobia as not negative or hostile perceptions in the, in the simplest, crudest form of way, but the way that Islamophobia worked also so through positive images, through what by then was gaining currency as the good Muslim versus the bad Muslim. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's really, really um, important to say that. And I would add one other thing, that in a sense, one of the things the book encountered was the sense of once you globalize Islamophobia, you end up having to play with this chronology. So one of the things that the book, I think, did implicitly, and perhaps it should have done more explicitly, was displace the Islamophobia from its place either in 1997 or this kind of moment where it's the, the, you know, Islamophobia is the longest hatred perpetrated against Muslims. So it's constant. Because one of the things that linked with it was when you look at Islamophobia, let's say in in in, in um, you know Thailand or or, or in, in in Burma, and you look at Islamophobia in 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 India, one of the things that was very very clear that the idea of the immigrant was often replaced by the idea of the invader, and now and I think those were not just um, 
cosmetic differences, because of course we know there's slippage between the back and uh, back and forth. But in one place, the Muslim presence was entering a world which had already been set, the world had already been established. They were always recent. They couldn't speak the language. They couldn't um, couldn't acclimatize to the cultural practices. They didn't share the same food, etc. They were part of the same community as such. In the other, Muslims existed before the formation of the political orders, or or, or at least the early more modern and modern iterations of those states. So it was a very different kind of exercise of Islamophobia. Now, what we've seen subsequently, I would say to you, is a kind of a merging between those two narratives in a sense where the the figure of the immigrant and the invader and, and the terrorist come to organize the conceptual universe of Muslimness, that Muslimness presence is felt in those registers, and those registers are uh, substitutable um, from one to the other without too much um, challenge or difficulty. And I think that in, in that regard, two, two things. One is that um, one of the things that the book did so well was that it didn't fall into that trap of edited collections, which is some sort of semblance of, of, of wanting to have representational contexts and comprehensive coverage of what constitutes the global, but rather very clearly had a sense of a typology of different configurations of, of the Muslim and their problematization into four forms, which you've just outlined of. The major one that's being mistaken for the, for the, for the only one would be the minority that's problematized and instead to, to, to place the, the nation state to some extent at the center of this and to see also how in context, which was one of our four, where the Muslim presence is re- residual, if at all, uh, it's still Islamophobia is present and still has iterations of its own. But going to the point that you've just made, which I think is absolutely the case, explaining it, at least in part, has to do with the circulation of the way that Islamophobia and the configuration of the Muslim within Islamophobia, and it's not just discourses, it's discourses and practices, travels. And why that is so central is because we've always argued that Islamophobia, to some extent, the two faces of Islamophobia that are always present are uh, both the local and the global, with the war on terror as as one uh, version uh, of, of, the, of that global. And this is not to mistake, we've always been very uh, emphatic about this, that Islamophobia started in, line, in 9-11 or started with the actual war on terror. Its roots are, are, are long there and Islamophobia, like racism, has always worked by accretion, by re-articulation, by reinserting itself in, in different contexts. But within the context of the, war, of the war on terror, what we have is the literal... Uh, reiteration of discourses that prove successful in particular contexts, whether that be with prevent programs, with securitization programs, but also... You mean countering um, prevent, of course, is uh, countering violent extremism for um, people outside 
the these blessed isles yes but outside these blessed isles the very n- name if not the model of of prevent circulated uh, uh directly taken up by other kinds of agency in different mm. countries and so called by other names it is the same thing that travels and it's not just the model of the problematization and the approaches to questions of radicalization it's the policies themselves the 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 training and all the different mechanisms and forms of addressing it uh, institutionally mechanically digitally and so on that 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 travel and this isn't just state agencies of course we see the same at work in the counter-jihad and uh, all the kinds of uh, right-wing and extreme right-wing and populist movements, that while they themselves speak the language of locality because they trade on their local history in order precisely to problematize the Muslims as outsiders, while they speak that nativist language of defending their particular models, they are continuously in financial circulation, in circulation of tropes, and in meeting uh, and, and organizing. So that the same kind of problematization of, of Muslims that you see in one context immediately mushrooms across in completely different contexts. No, I think this is um, perhaps leads us on to this um, question that you haven't really um, addressed Given all of this, why talk about a definition? So we've talked about some of the kind of conceptual problems with the definition, and we haven't really come to the moment of confession where we say, despite all of these things, why we think what I would like to call a people's definition or really a popular understanding of Islamophobia, why that's important and why we um, think that the understanding of Islamophobia as a type of racism that targets expressions of Muslimness or perceived Muslimness is important for this endeavor to succeed. Yeah. So perhaps we could separate two different things. One is the practical and pragmatic way in which having a sense of a shared definition enables it to do the kind of work that we've always thought is particularly important for any definition to do, which is to be able to name something, to be able to contest something, and to empower those who who use it. And so the notion that the definition would enable those who otherwise may see their victimhood as something that they simply have to endure or cannot find a language for. But by coming across a definition that's easily understood, that circulates and has traction, would enable them to see that what they may understand as a personal failing or or problem is actually a socially uh, 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 embedded one that can only be tackled by means of a a collective uh, kind of uh, response. So that's one element of it. And so a definition proof, yeah. I think that's a really important point here because one of the effects of racism and other forms of um, institutionalized discriminatory practices is that they relocate the causal relationship of those, the causal elements of that, into the body of the individual. And I think it's part of the kind of broader 
neoliberal episteme that, you know, the work of Foucault back in the 70s began to sort of dissect and, and, and uh, to deci- decipher. Because by doing that, of course, what you do, you remove the, 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 the element of collective action. You make collective action impossible. Um, I remember a lecture uh, by Zygmunt Bauman many, many years ago where he said that, you know, he made that kind of contrast between the 1930s where people had problems, but they saw the problems uh, finding resolution through organization, through union organization, for example. And the more people you had in a union, the more powerful the union could be, the more powerful that collective agency could be. And he contrasts that with the um, problem of uh, Weight Watchers clubs, that a Weight Watchers club basically doesn't look at, for example, the way that in the global north, the food industry is, 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 is con- contributing to uh, issues around weight gain, etc., or how uh, the organization of cities or organization of work or all of these things. So you internalize the problem, and it doesn't really matter whether there are 10,000 people on Weight Watchers or 5,000 people or 200 people because you still lose the weight individually. Whereas in a political demonstration, the difference between a demonstration of a million and a demonstration of 100,000 or a difference of 10,000 or 200 is hugely significant. Yeah, absolutely. But um, to, 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 to not lose track of, of, of the question that you raised, so if that is one uh, definite aspect of it, then let's, let's not forget the other side of the coin. The same way that it empowers someone who is the victim of uh, racial injustice to stand up for uh, redress, it also empowers those who have to act on it to better recognize that there is something there that they can act on. That's really, really important. I mean, to put it in, 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 in very crude and, and um, uh, simple terms, if it empowers someone to go to their equalities board with a complaint, it equally empowers those who are in the equalities board to recognize that this is something that they have to act on. But that, that was one aspect of it. The second aspect is to touch on what um, we've mentioned before as the uh, all-party parliamentary group. Uh, so for, for our global audience, um, within British Parliament, there are particular groups set up that have cross-party membership to tackle issues that are con- that are considered to be of sufficient weight and significance to merit the attention of the political class as a whole. And the fact that one such APPG, as they are called on British Muslims, that's, as the particular working group was called, uh, launched a consultation for a working definition on Islamophobia uh, was, I think, important because it, it kind of created a, a momentum around the consultation that, that had been a little bit lost in conversations around Islamophobia by inviting communities, stakeholders, scholars, and so on to to contribute uh, their uh, sense of why a definition was needed, what kind of definition would do the work that was required. But at the same time, and I think perhaps this is no less important, it created a sort of uh, a sense of hope and even conviction that there was going to be real recognition of what within Muslim communities was taken for granted, but with, but without outside of Muslim communities seemed to be absolutely not taken seriously. 
So the notion of an all-party parliamentary group launching a, cons a consultation from which would issue a definition that would be taken up by statutory bodies created a sense of, of hopefulness and even conviction that something in the form of action rather than the sort of mounting of reports and investigation and research and evidence, which we had piles of, would finally translate. Now, I think that what happened and uh, is essentially that we shouldn't underestimate that once the definition was published, it did get taken up by the majority of political parties in this country, except one. Well, yeah. The government, which is yeah. telling. <laughs> um, yeah. it's, it's also, and this is a, a sidetrack, and I don't want us to go that way right now, but even if it has been adopted by one and not by the other of the two major parties, it remains the case that Islamophobia is an endemic problem in both parties, and that is not seriously getting the attention that it should. So, so the adoption of definitions in and of itself doesn't resolve issues, as we've already said. But, but just to, yeah. No, I think this is, I want to make a point here about the expectations of a definition. And one of the problems with any kind of expectation, and it goes back to what we said before, is the evacuation of the idea of the contested nature of Islamophobia. So in one way, the, defini the, the need for some kind of uh, definition which would lay down the law, metaphorically, if not literally, about what it is, begins from the premise that there is a confusion or a conflict around various ways of understanding this. What it doesn't do is understand the nature of this confusion and conflict is not ignorance. And that, I think, is a problem, one of the biggest problems about it. There's a degree of uh, naivete or a misunderstanding of the political nature of Islamophobia. And I don't mean political in, in a kind of party political sense. I mean political in a kind of fundamental sense in which the distinction between friend and enemy is condensed in that moment, because in different times in history, you can find certain issues which act as markers of division. You tell me someone does this, and I can tell you their political trajectory, their political goals. I, I can tell you many things about them simply by that kind of marker. So, you know, you can see that at moments of heightened tension, uh, you can see that in terms of uh, very, very politically polarized situations with a high degree of mobilization, etc. Um, but I would say to you now that Islamophobia works in a similar way, that a position that someone has on Islamophobia allows you to read not just their attitude to the treatment or the regulation of Muslimness in a particular context, but through a chain of equivalences, many other political positions. Well, this is absolutely key because it's, it's, it's key to so many different things and we'll have to come back to it in a moment, certainly, because it, contrary to what some people say, the reason Muslims have to articulate with other anti-racist, 
anti-securitarian, um, anti-erosion of civil liberties groups isn't a tactical or strategic one. It's because it's imbricated that Muslims are at the point at which the forging of new rules and laws of exception are being carried out, which will affect all. And so it's, it's, it's intrinsic to the political mobilizations that have to be done, that they have to be across the board. But if you don't mind, we'll, we'll, co we'll go back to that one in just a moment because it goes to a much more consequential kind of issue that you're raising there. Just to say that uh, on, the, on, the, on the notion of Islamophobia not being about ignorance, um, although that wasn't the point that you're making, you're making about the definition, but it's important to also pick up that because it's, a, it's an important, still commonly held um, uh, red herring, that if only people were more educated about Muslims, Islamophobia would go away. That if only people knew the true Islam, then we wouldn't have the problems that, that we have. But the, the same went for the notions of racism, that racism flourished where, where there was lack of education. But if only you were educated people, then racism would, would go away. That there was this really simple correlation between levels of education and racism. But we, we know that this is not the case, and part of why we insist that this is not the case is precisely so that we move away from notions of racism as attitudes or preconceptions that individuals carry towards much more systemic, much more embedded notions of what uh, Islamophobia uh, is, and racism uh, in general are about. Um, when we have the sort of moment of eruption of street violence, it is never an individual who suddenly, by their madness, is carried out into is, is carried on to an attack. But we have the licensing by all kinds of uh, political uh, dog whistling, by senses of uh, uh, emboldened entitlement to space and so on, of the problematization of, of the outsider. But to come back to to the APPG thing, so I think that. Uh, you were asking why now is, is what explains our sort of um, investment in the notion of definition. So I think that it's important to say that whatever issues there are with the APPG definition, a lot of them have to do with the sense that it is worth pointing out that the, the process was somewhat rushed. I mean, it's, it's unquestionably the case. The process was somewhat rushed, and perhaps more importantly than, than rushed, it lacked transparency, and it was insufficiently concerned with building stakeholding throughout, which should have been the, the key thing that it should be, have been doing. So that when the definition was actually came out, it should have hit the ground running. It should have been prepared with the actual definition. They did this thing where they didn't want to say what it was. And the big reveal was the moment when everybody assembled to sort of declare the winner. And that was the biggest mistake of all. Because if they had worked with all the different kinds of, of stakeholders who had submitted definitions, which were not picked, to say these are the elements of the definition we're working with so that everybody could feel a sense of ownership in it, they would have had the champions for the, for the definition the moment it came out onto communities and communities would take it as something they could work with. So that literacy around definitions that we've talked about should have been something that you build up, not something that you suddenly disclose. So if, if that's one of the important things to sort of take into account, then the, the step that follows clearly 
is to separate out the process in its failings from the question of the definition itself. And the only question that matters then is to ask, is the definition fit for purpose? And what is worth hanging on? Why is it worth hanging on to it? Why do we believe that it does the work? Now, you said a moment ago that the definition as, as we've been working with it, and the definition that we submitted to the consultation process resembles quite closely the wording of what the um, APPG definition is. And as you, as you said it a moment ago, it's that Islamophobia is a type of racism that targets expressions of Muslimness and perceived Muslimness. And basically what it says is two things, that, racism, that Islamophobia is a type of racism and that that type of racism targets expressions of Muslimness. So those are the two key things that we think are important to the work that it can do and is worth hanging on to. So, Salman, why, why is it that Muslimness or perceived Muslimness is so important to the definition that we believe is still worth hanging on to? I think I would answer this by two things. Firstly, there are a number of submissions around not just the APG process, but example, for example, in the Runnymede report and many others, which had started to think about Islamophobia as a type of racism. So I think that was already a shifting of the ground somewhere along the way in that. What was not clear is, is, is what that racism was. So, and I think the introduction of the concept of Muslimness does two things. One, it delineates the object of the racism but in doing so, it transforms the understanding of racism that, so that it aligns with the way in which racism is actually conducted in society rather than the way that it is um, represented in society. And I think it's important to bear that in mind. To, so let me clarify the difference between the representation of racism and the conduct of racism. In the general kind of representation of racism, whether it's through, through uh, educational institutions, books, media, journalists, etc., etc., the kind of conversation of racism, there is, a, there is a kind of a tension. The, and that tension is around the relationship between race and racism. Okay. There is a conventional understanding that races exist and the existence of racism is what races, uh, existence of races is what racism is predicated upon. Okay. Now, on the one hand, we have a very kind of clear scientific discourse, you know, it's height in the sort of early 20th century, late 19th century, around scientific racism in which races are biological categories. And then we have the post-Holocaust uh, drawing away from that and saying, well, actually, Races are not biological categories, they're socially constructed. Now, the problem is that that stepping away 
says that they're socially constructed, but nearly all the uses in that representation simply transform the construction from biological vectors to what they would call euphemistically social or cultural vectors, but it doesn't really change anything. So in the yeah. end, we have a, the same uh, messy ordering of populations, but re- sort of redescribed. But the redescription is at the surface level rather than conceptually different. In the conduct of racism, of course, people constantly use this view of racism as being a social construction. Even if they don't use the language of social construction, their behavior and their kind of comportment reinscribes social construction in every single instance. So in, that's why when you go to different places, you have different configurations of how behaviors, uh, cultural practices uh, are mapped onto different readings of bodies. And they can be very sophisticated readings of bodies, or they can be particularly uh, crude in the sense that the delineations is not that uh, you know, it's not that uh, cultured or that kind of uh, uh, precise. But when people talk about race in that in, in, their, in their in their social world, you will notice the difference that they use, how they understand it. So, for example, in in in, in France, the signifier Arab does a lot of the work that a signifier like black does in, in, the, in the United Kingdom and to some extent in the United States. Yeah? And, and you can multiply these examples again and again, uh, what's going on there. Or the, the same kinds of codes of criminality, the same kinds of dysfunctional families are implanted upon. Of course, there are local um, differences, whatever. So in the way that people live, they use an understanding of race which isn't what produces racism. Rather, they have an understanding of race, which is a product of the racism inherent in those societies, and I would say now more or less globally. So racism produces races, and the process of producing races um, racialization is actually one of the key social processes at play in the world. Racialization is a continuous activity. It's not an event once and forever. It's constantly, it's a process. It's constantly working and reshaping different kinds of configurations to formulate new categorizations of race, new categorizations that were being racialized. And here, the Muslimness becomes one of the main surfaces of inscription where this racialization is now being carried out, both at the level of the street, 
but also the level of the state. It's been done through mechanisms of popular culture, as well as cold, bureaucratic, uh, almost uh, colorless and colorblind ways of dealing with the public. So I think that is a really, really important point for me, that what Muslimness does is deconstruct the embedded dominant categorization of the relationship between race and racism, whether it's through the idea which is supposed to be always discounted of biologically determined racism to a one which says, well, of course there are no races, we are all one human race, but acts like there are races anyway in their actual social comportment. Yeah. And um, I guess that there were quite a few things to un- unpack there. <laughs> what order we take them in will 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 send us in slightly different directions. So um, the importance of um, having Muslimness, as so as as you mentioned before, uh, a number of reports, including to be more precise, because you forgot to, to give the date, the 2017 uh, Runnymede report, which was a 20-year. Uh, commemoration of their 1997 one is the one that defines uh, Islamophobia as anti-Muslim racism. So there was a, a growing convergence, not just among reports, but among scholars, among, importantly, uh, uh, grassroots activists of all kinds, converging on the notion of Islamophobia as a form of racism. What is specific about what we try to clarify is the notion that that type of racism targets Muslimness. And one important thing, as you've said, conceptually and, and, and also in practical terms, is the way that it interrupts the kinds of um, structurings of the relationship between race and races that you've already outlined. Another one, which is important, is that it also, by being about markers of Muslimness, it makes very clear that in any given context, those markers are different. They're both historically, um, they draw on historical tropes and, and kinds of imagery that is uh, endemic in particular contexts or shared across particular spaces like European and, and Christendom and so on. But at the same time, they are very local and they merge with different kinds of signifiers of difference and so on. But importantly, within Muslim, uh, intra-Muslim conversations, is to get us away from the notion that uh, Islamophobia has to trade on some sort of question about what true Islam is, or about practicing Muslims, or who is a Muslim and who is not, and so on. By making it about Muslimness, we're saying that it is irrespective, and to to a very large extent, actually, to put it very bluntly, irrelevant what true Islam is, or who is a practicing Muslim, or who is not. Because what is at stake, as with all racisms, is not the nature of the victim, but that of the perpetrator. And so by putting the emphasis on the markers of Muslimness, which is what is targeted, it makes it about what is being projected onto the bodies and the spaces of the Muslim, rather than what actually is the Muslim about. So if, if we pick up on that notion of Muslimness, and we say that one of the things that we need to definitely clarify the ground around is that it does not, by means of having the word Muslim in it, 
put us on the terrain of disputations about who is and what is Islam or Muslim, then, or, or, or a Muslim. That that is has to be absolutely crystal clear to to all those who who want to engage in this, and that is one of the most commonly raised phantoms and mis and, and and red herrings around the definition. The second one is that by speaking about racism, and I I, I fail to even see how we make this this uh, literal leap, we are somehow talking about race, the Muslim race. So the most commonly raised objection to the notion that Islamophobia is a type of racism is the comeback that, but Muslims are not a race. And the this uh, objection is raised from the most educated kind of race relations uh, people to the caller to the shock jock radio program. So what's the simplest repost to this? I don't know about the simplest repost, uh, 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 but I do know that it fundamentally mistakes what the situation is. So Muslims are not a race, but Muslims are being racialized. And there are many examples of that racialization. Um, and that racialization depends on variety of markers. It can be for women the hijab, it can be the beard, it can be the food, it can be the residence, it can be the way they look, it can be many, many things. And they amalgamate and they float in specific contexts we get trained to see a Muslim because we read a Muslim by these darkers of Muslimness. Now, you know, um, some of these almost kind of, uh, you know, snake oil merchants who uh, were training the securocrats on how to, um, how to spot a Muslim. And, 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 and some of that, you know, is laughable and it's funny, but it's also deadly serious where you have basically a, kind of a recovery or a kind of re reactivation of 19th century criminology models of almost phrenology that kind of looking at the bumps in the skull to work out the patterns of uh, radicalization and Muslimness, etc. And this is something that is both, uh, like I said, comical and absurd, but it's also done not in sort of the, um, you know, outlandish, semi-educational institutions or these weird think tanks uh, who, which carry out the campaigns against vaccination, etc., etc., or elements of that. This has actually been carried out in some of the most eminent institutions of higher learning in the world. And it's being done, on the one hand, unproblematically, but also nearly in every case, very, very defensively that um, a whole literature and industry around countering violent extremism has evolved, which includes academics, which includes public funding bodies, which includes um, you know, security personnel, politicians, all the kind of amalgam of trying to do good in the world. It's almost part of that kind of the global challenges that need to be resolved. But the kind of epistemological status of that, the kind of theoretical rigor of that, and finally, it's kind of 
pragmatic possibilities are totally uh, vacuous, in a sense, that it doesn't do much more than that. Now, having said all of this then, it seems to me we need to look at, despite so many difficult problems with these various kinds of markers, you know, from psychology, from disciplines like sociology, from anthropology, all of these markers, what they're trying to do is, is, you know, bottle lightning. What they're trying to do is find the essence of um, Muslimness. And the failure to find the essence is the failure of this um, entire project. My favorite project was um, some years ago, I heard about a project that was, um, was given, I think, about $50 million to classify all the metaphors in a number of suspect languages, like Arabic, uh, Farsi, Urdu, I think Spanish as well for some reason. But there were a number of these key languages that the argument was that once we understand what these metaphors are, we will have an understanding that will allow us to delineate um, radicalization and, of course, by that, Muslimness. Now, this was a real thing rather than a Borgesian invention uh, where you would try and map out that. And that, I think, is one of the key factors that remains with us, that when you see so much effort, which akin, is akin to the kind of, in the educational effort around racism to plot out and map races, you realize that this effort has been directed to enable that racialization, to be enabled to turn a Muslim, whether they are from Senegal or the Maghreb or from Bangladesh, into an object which breaks with those various classifications into a new object of study and intervention. So the birth of the Muslim, even in the council of ex-Muslims, for example, is really about that racialization of object. So when people say to me, but Muslims are not a race, what they are not recognizing is the process of racialization which is transforming Muslimness into an object that can be treated as a race. And it's the difficulty and the challenge of trying to match a previous um, architecture of racialization to a new um, contemporary uh, architecture of racialization, which is where a lot of people stumble. But the reality is that Racialization is moving along a pace. Populations are becoming educated to spot a Muslim. And I think that um, one of the things that goes along with that is on the one hand, um, a sort of clarity that a discredited scientific approach to races and their classification means that there are no such thing as races. And yet, at the same time, a compulsive demand uh, to, to, for Muslims to not be thought of 
along the lines of, of this construction, which is understood to be a construction. So part of it, we have to ask why this, why this obsessive separation of the Muslim from other groups that are understood to be racialized. But perhaps more important is just to touch on an associated comment that is made, where those who will accept that there is racialization once you discuss it will say, ah, yes, but that's for you academics. I mean, it's, it's a kind of language that you use, but the man in the street will not understand this and it will have no, um, therefore it will have no operability within the street. I think that on the one hand, and I'll, I'll be very keen to hear what you have to say, on the one hand, in, in, in all kinds of different everyday expressions, people show their understanding of racialization much greater than these presumed skeptics would accept. For example, when, when Muslims uh, were uh, very uh, able to say at certain points in time uh, along the years, um, Muslims are the new Irish within the British-UK context of securitization, Muslims are the new black, they knew exactly what they were talking about when they were giving a, a metaphor of what is for intents and purposes uh, uh, racialization. And even... Contrary to some academics who, for example, would say that when a white woman dons the hijab and gets uh, racially harassed and told, go back to, to your own country, scholars would come and say, you know, these people are being, uh, um, they're being racialized because they're being mistaken for Pakistanis. So this is, a, this is racism by proxy, as, as one scholar put it. R wrong. Not only is it not racism by proxy, it's racialization, but Muslims understood that. They understood that when a white woman puts on the hijab, she is made into a category of the Muslim, and that's what's being targeted. She's not being mistaken for an ethnic minority who's being told to go home. So what, what do you respond to this notion that it's all very good for you guys to explain this in terms of racialization, but this has no sense for, the, for, 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 for common sense? I think it, it reveals a deep-seated intellectualism, which is actually incoherent. So, for example, um, what that would mean is that we couldn't talk about the bubonic plague except in the terms of those who suffered the bubonic plague. Or when people say that they have a, a headache to the doctor, we, we say, well, actually, when the doctor gives it a scientific name, um, it has no kind of relationship to that. Or, for example, when we talk about inflation, there is no understanding of uh, most people don't know what inflation means in, in a kind of economic sense. They may know the experience of it, and they know that 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 signifier is associated with these sorts of things, but they couldn't really tell you much more about it, but they still are able to have an understanding. Or the final one, apartheid. No one knew what apartheid was. People weren't born knowing what apartheid was. It was a process of political education which delivered an understanding of apartheid to people in very different contexts, very different histories, so they were able to relate it to the extent that you can use apartheid in a way, which is a difficult word, it's not a word in English, it's not a word that speaks directly to anyone's um, immediate experience right now, but people can understand it. So I think this is a completely incoherent anti-intellectual position that is made repeatedly in the name of the woman in the street, 
Um, rather than, you know, anyone understanding how categories work in a culture. We live in a world saturated with social science categories, which we treat as being objects and neutral descriptions and which makes sense to us, even though most people would not be able to um, present the genealogy of those social science categories or even the kind of literature or the effort goes into their theoretical construction. So I think that's a, what I would stand on this point. But let me ask you an, another question about this. As you're familiar, there has been some moves which talk about Islamophobia has to be understood as being rooted in religion rather than, um, you know, an ex a type of racism. What would you respond to that? Because in some of the markers, clearly, that we've talked about, which determine Muslimness, hijab, the beard, etc., they can all be located back to what they would say is religious categories. So why, what would you say about this idea that any understanding of Islamophobia, which does not include its rootedness, in the antipathy to religion or specifically the antipathy to Islam is not worth its salt? Well, I, I think that there's probably two or three things that would be worth saying. One, which is a, a minor and inconsequential one, is that the APPG definition added on to the definition we've been discussing that um, Islamophobia is a type of racism and uh, a type of racism that targets uh, expressions of Muslims or perceived Muslims added the words rooted and rooted in racism. And I think that's, that became a sort of clarion call to that notion of being rooted in racism then evoked almost as a reaction the notion of rooted in religion. So that's just for, for, for purposes of, of framing the wording in it. But what it relates to, I think, within the British context is a history which is very clear of a context, legal, um, a legal context which afforded protection to particular groups under race relations law in the United Kingdom, which did not extend to Muslims. So it extended, for example, to Jews and to Sikhs because they were considered um, ethno-religious groups. It afforded it to groups that were clearly and distinctly understood as races, but it left Muslims out. And that meant that all the different kinds of what we now absolutely, I think, understand to have been forms of racism, although at the time they were debated and discussed as issues about freedom of speech and humor and all those kinds of things that coalesced around the, 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 the Rushdie affair, all of those exposed uh, gaps in the law and a sense that whereas groups like Christians were protected under blasphemy law, whereas racial and mono-ethno-religious uh, groups were understood to be comprised within race relations law, Muslims were left exposed. And so that notion of what it was that distinctively left them exposed and what it was that the attacks were centering on was that it now had to bring parity 
for Muslims under the category of religion. I think that has been one of the single most counterproductive and problematic aspects of the way that the ground set the terms for discussion. I think that to some extent this is provincially British, not necessarily generalized. And so to pick up on that, when the Runnymede 1997 landmark report, Islamophobia, a challenge for us all, comes into the, onto, the, onto the table, it brings a, 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 a set of related interests from race relations to interfaith uh, um, brokers, whose concern is to ensure that while much of its language understands that this is a form of racism, although it doesn't yet say so, it will take 20 years before it says so, what it seeks redress for is to bring Muslims under the protection of religious discrimination. And I think and there will be great extent for discussion around this, that the way that this is ultimately resolved which is with the 2010 Equalities Act that sets out a set of protected characteristics that, that sort of aggregates the different distinct blocks. By separating out and adding religion, which is the one where Muslims will come in, from race, which is where others will come in, is extremely problematic. It's extremely problematic for any number of reasons, but one of them has to do with the fact that, and I think that this is where I'll pass the ball back to you because you have written so much about this and thought so much about this, the category and the notion that there is this distinctiveness between race and religion is itself an extremely provincially and historically contingent one. And rather than accept the separation, what we need is to actually problematize the way in which this distinction is made in the first place. No, I mean, I think uh, I, I take that point. I mean, I think one of the ironies is this, that often this um, demand to recognize the religious underpinnings of Islamophobia um, as, a, as a kind of a, a rejection of the kind of Eurocentrism and advancing secularism, uh, secularist agenda of um the definition or the understanding that we have uh, championed and invested so much in it and, and drafted is, is, is a failure to recognize that religion itself is the par excellence Eurocentric category. In a way, it is what makes Christianity is the religion. Everything else is something else. And it's only, and you know, we know the work, uh, you know, the making of world religions, it's only in the kind of latter half of the 19th century that they determine that there are 14 religions, but these religions are patterned on what is Christianity, which means they always have problems of not being, def you know, always being defective religions, always being deviant religions, religions that require tidying up, intervention, etc., etc. So, you know, the religion itself is an extremely Eurocentric category. And you can't escape that by saying, well, religion is simply a translation of deen, etc., because it doesn't work like that. And, you know, we know the works which talk about the first translation of the Quran into English. Before the category of religion, um, you know, was prevalent, described Islam or described deen, translated deen, into holy law rather than religion. And you can so it becomes a very, very different reading 
of the Quran, when you read it, where you say the word deen, you read holy law, rather than the word religion. But more problematically and more difficult um, to grasp is that that category of religion is one of the main ways in which Muslimness is disciplined. Because the problem with Muslimness is that it seems to seep out of two containers, the container of the nation state and the container of religion. Absolutely. And both these leakages, the Muslimness becomes a signifier of transnationality and a signifier of this religious leakage which contaminates the body politic, which contaminates the distinction between private and public, which is central to the modern architecture of the nation-state, even in totalitarian societies, where, of course, it's supposed to be undone, but it's undone on the basis of a truer distinction between the private and the public. So I think that is really, really problematic where those who want to defend um, the idea of rooted religion. And yet, but I want and to add yet something, that, and I want to... Yet sorry. that Muslim, that Muslim as excess, that, um, that sense of, of Muslim as, as, as uh, spilling out, as you put it, of, of those categories, is also what helps to think, as, as we do in our book, uh, and, and as you do with the category of Kemalism, of the way that um, Islamophobia is uh, re reiterated within Muslim contexts. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, but I, I want to talk about that in a bit, but I want to go back to one other part of this um, um, concept of religion, because as you know, this is also an attempt by some uh, Muslim scholars to look for an Islamic definition of Islamophobia. I wonder whether you could respond to that and what do you think of these attempts to find a sharia halal definition sharia compliant and halal definition of islamophobia well i, I think that there are two, two problems and two understandable elements of it one is the notion that, that to to start with a more understandable version of it is the notion that um if if islamophobia is about anything it is about muslim agency and that Muslim agency should also be epistemological. Or the denial of Muslim agency. Uh, sorry, yeah, yes, sorry. of course. So um, it, it's a denial of Muslim agency, and therefore um, it, it, it means that agency must also mean uh, an epistemological one. And therefore that categories by which we think ourselves and the issues around us should issue from uh, our center of gravity and concerns. So we, we have a long history of Islamization of sciences and everything else to work with. And so we're very familiar with these kinds of uh, different um, attempts to, to, to think along these lines. Part of the issue with that is that it slips into two things. One is the notion that Islamophobia is concurrent with the emergence of Islam. And therefore, every attempt to resist or problematize the birth and, pro and expansion and consolidation and development of Islam is accompanied by an anti-Islam. And that Islamophobia, therefore, is just the oldest hatred 
in its particular variance across time, but always one and essentially the same. So the, the premise with which we started is that Islamophobia is centered on the category of the Muslim, and the category of the Muslim is itself a historically trans, uh, uh, transitive one. So it, it doesn't help us. It doesn't help us in any conceptually valid way to think of Islamophobia or anti-Semitism or racism as trans-historically essential. That's the first thing. The second thing is that it, the mistake that is common in all of these attempts is to think that what is at stake in articulating Islamophobia is the truth of Islam. And therefore, that's why you have to go to an Islamically valid category for constructing the notion of Islamophobia. It's not. It's about tackling racism. And in tackling racism, what you have to do is to deconstruct the categories of the racist, not validate the categories of the Muslim or of whoever else it is. So it's two category errors that are at stake in that. Uh, so however valid the notion might be, we need our own categories to think with. It's simply conceptually broken to translate that into the notions of a Muslim truth and an essentialist Muslim Islamic truth. That's really helpful because when you touch upon the category of translation, one of the issues that we've sort of alluded to in various parts of these two conversations is... Um, the way in which thinking through Islamophobia was certainly one of the earliest attempts to mark out Islamophobia as a global phenomenon. Now, part of that challenge has been to deal with the fact that categories like um, racism um, have circuits in which it is easier to build, because one of the things we've talked about with our definition has been that it's built upon, like you've put it very eloquently, century or more of anti-colonial struggle, decades or more of anti-racist struggles. Now, in contexts where either those struggles are not, are not sort of to the forefront of the public imagination because they have been re-described or they are missing, how do we deal with the idea of, well, what does it mean to talk about Islamophobia as a type of racism that targets expressions of Muslimness in, let's say, uh, Muslim communities or in communities outside the kind of global north um, ex-colonial or even post-colonial societies, and I include the United States in that as well, um, given its history of uh, Native American relation to the Native Americans and, of course, African Americans, etc. So, how would you deal with those societies? Societies often which consider themselves to be subjugated by European colonialism, and prior to that, as a popular narrative goes, um, often Islamicate colonialism. Do you want to say something about the translation of that um, understanding in those contexts? Mm. So, um, 
perhaps uh, two things that converge towards the notion of us speaking about Islamophobia globally. One would be that whether we are speaking about Bosniaks, uh, whom otherwise may uh, appear entirely European and indistinguishable from uh, others. Uh, whether we're talking about the Moros in the Philippines, the Chechens in Russia, the Uyghurs in China, the Rohingya in both Myanmar and in Bangladesh, we are talking about cat, uh, groups that are racialized in, in, in not different ways from the ways that groups are racialized within the Western context that we're more familiar uh, in these discourses on, on race and racism. The question then, the crunch of that question would be, what happens in contexts such as India or in contexts where uh, the, Mus the group that is categorically demarcated as Muslim is seen as somehow, according to the to the to the objection, indifferentiable from other members of, the, of, of those populations. Except Kashmir, of course. The Kashmir situation can easily meet that criteria of racialization, and you saw that in the debate in the Indian parliament, where it was a question about, well, we'll marry these fair-skinned Kashmiri women, and, you know, there's a whole kind of panoply of deployment of racial markers there, quite clearly. So I think but please carry on. Well, but I, but correct me if, if, if I am wrong, but if we take India as one of the cases that is raised as such an objection, it is not so difficult to think back to 1947 and to the way in which when partition was taking place, the racialization that was at work in the targeting of Muslims was very clear, either of uh, markers of Muslims or perceived Muslimness were what resulted in the kinds of targeting of population groups. Nobody was actually asking people to recite the Kalima. It was markers of Muslimness that were at work in the perpetration of violence. So what I don't understand is when people say you only have to look at India to see how race is not at work in the, in the targeting of Muslims. It seems to me very clear that it is. No, I think that's true. And I think this goes back to the kind of... Um, need for political education to talk about the construction of race. Because one of the ironic things on many of these places is that while they say things like, well, there is no races or the races are altogether, a lot of their uh, historiography, a lot of their kind of public discourse is saturated with 19th century categories which themselves were simply replaying racial logics everywhere. So the kind of most popular accounts of, of, of um, India remain and hegemonic to this day are about the uh, external Muslim invader who is racially marked as being distinct. So, for example, in even David Eaton's book, he talks about how the Muslims were known as, uh, they were known as Turks, therefore this was not a religious conflict, this was a Turk-Hindu conflict, but again, mistakes the point. The point for, you know, there's a kind of moment there for that book to locate the intensity of the division, not in religious difference, but by default in racial difference. Like those two things can be read, dif uh, you know, read them that way. It seems to me very, very clear that 
that kind of narrative of Indonology, for example, is still beholden largely to that 19th century view of the world in which uh, global order was a product of contending uh, races, whether they were called civilizations or they were called cultures or whatever. But that was their moment. That was the moment that they were understood was in that intensity of the racial contact and that kind of racialized reading, which was prevalent there. But the other case, perhaps more difficult, sorry. No, no. uh, The other case, which is more difficult, would be the idea of racism in the case of, um, you know, the Islamosphere, um, societies which are predominantly Islamicate, where predominantly the population is Muslim and calls itself and is able to address itself and comports itself as Muslim. How would you then account for Islamophobia as a type of racism in those cases? So what it means to say that Islamophobia is a type of racism is to go back to what your earlier discussion about what racism entails is. So if races are not the real, if what is at stake is a process which is not individualist, it's not about attitudes and it is in fact about structures and about hierarchies. And in fact, to go to one of your key categories that you developed all the way back in fundamental fear, it is about the uh, governing, it is about the regulation of Muslims, then we can think of the way that racism operates, not in terms of races, which is where we'll, we'll get on the wrong terrain, but in terms of racism. And with that, I pass the ball back to you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I suppose for me, look, there's some easy examples. We can see, for example, in Turkey, the landscape between the difference between the white Turk and the non-Turk. But then also we can see within these Kemalist regimes, the attempt to construct either a a kind of a European heritage for the non or the anti-Muslim presence. So, for example, very clearly in in the um, uh, Iranian discourse before the revolution, the idea of Iran being an Aryan nation because of its Aryanness being European and the reason why it hasn't become as Europe was because of the Semitic invasion uh, in the form of Islam was uh, was associated with uh, biologically determined Arabs rather than uh, an expansion of Muslimness. And, and, and that's just one example, but you can multiply those examples in other contexts um, in the Balkans, in other parts of the world, where you can make that reference to a pre-Islamic uh, trajectory which is diverted by the Muslims, and therefore the markers are still there. Their markers are there in terms of, for example, how um, they comport themselves to a cosmopolitan lifestyle, um, you know, the, the, way they, uh, the way they suggest themselves, the way uh, their anger and hostility towards uh, markers of Muslimness. And, you know, I was thinking it's only about 10, 20 years ago when a hijab-wearing MP in the Turkish parliament was basically hounded out of office. Um, You know, and there are many, many examples in many, many societies where there's a kind of an elite, often um, 
anglophonic or francophonic, um, often um, reading liberal books but living authoritarian lifestyles. You know, they, they, they may read um, Nabokov or, or Lolita in other places, but they will actually, the way they, they comport themselves with their society is, is very, very clear. They see themselves as a besieged community or a beleaguered, if not besieged necessarily. So I think, again, that racial logic is there in the way that those markers, and I think the final point that I want to make uh, around this is that one of the things that I think is emerging to me, uh, emerging, is the way in which Islamophobia is being written by neo-nationalism. And what I mean by neo-nationalism, if you look at the regimes in China, Burma, France, uh, Macron, Austria, it is very, very clear that they share a number of anxieties which have local kind of um, iterations. Part of those anxieties is the project of being able to project themselves into the future. And one of the ways that that anxiety is played out is on the body of Muslimness, that the existence of Muslimness prevents the future or interrupts the future. And, and you can see this very, very clearly, not just in, 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 in you know, uh, the phenomenon of uh, kind of the crisis of white supremacy, which, um, you know, in the United States, in, in France, in Britain, in many of Austria, and you can multiply those examples. But also the crisis of white supremacy as a global project. And this is a more difficult challenge. In some ways, it's easier, for example, within the kind of discourse around the um, BGP and its, its kind of um, forces around that, because for them, again, the articulation of Aryanness gives them an entry into this kind of the idea of whiteness in a way. But even in places like China and Burma, whiteness is, is, has always been an empty signifier. Uh, it's a marker of distinction. So part of that is that it's a, you know, it marks you off as being part of the future, as being modern, as being able to, um, to you know, assert who you are, to be strong. And all of these ambitions of national um, strength, of national recovery, in a post-Western context, because that's the other kind of ter- uh, challenge, that how Westernness, uh, whiteness, by becoming post-Western, enables many of those who would have been excluded from it to enter it. But the price of that entry is the subjugation and expulsion of Muslimness as a way of washing themselves, whitening themselves cleaner. So in a way, the whitewashing is the expulsion of Muslimness. And that stitches together Islamophobia in the contemporary Absolutely. world Absolutely. So in the Ottoman successor states in, in Eastern Europe, whether you were talking about Albania, Bulgaria, uh, subsequently in the Soviet Union and so on, the markers of, of, of entry into nation-stateness, into modernity, 
was the expulsion of, of the of the markers of the Muslim of the backwardness that had to be uh, repressed in order to acquire westernness and that is the iteration of Kemalism as as you have uh, argued elsewhere and now as you yes. say uh, that marker of westernness that was done through the expulsion of the Muslim in the post western world becomes the markers of whiteness before we end I think it would be important to come back to the present moment for the following reason. I think that um, there was a sort of post-post-9-11 moment in which after the sort of the hounding of the Muslim, there was a sense that Muslims were again becoming, or perhaps anew, becoming integrated into, certainly in Britain, uh, all the different elements of media, state, government, local government, civil society, and so on. And there was a sense that perhaps the worst had, had passed. And um, I wonder whether the kinds of manifestations on the one hand around first the Black Lives Movement moment and now the almost complete receding of that moment in certain public debates on the one hand, and on the other, what is happening in France with Macron represents a new configuration or perhaps a reassertion of the kind of moments that we've seen before. What are your thoughts on this? I think there is more of a continuity than a discontinuity between the two processes. While I completely accept there was a greater recognition of a Muslim public presence, it was partly to do with the project of neoliberalism and the way of trying to construct, at least in parts of the Western plutocracies, a post-racial um, society. And one of the markers of post-racial society was this uh, visibly uh, understanding of diversity as it related to uh, bodily configurations, um, as it related to phenotypes, as it related to different cultures, etc. So if you think about that post-racial, it becomes um, certainly in the European Union as part, in many ways, of a marker of what was the kind of height of European civilization. So much so that in many of the Eastern European members of the European Union, this, there was a kind of a valorization that to be truly modern, you had to be, uh, to some extent, um, uh, multicultural, uh, to use the kind of thing. Now, at the same time, of course, we know there was a discourse against multiculturalism, so there was part of that pattern. And certainly in the UK, many of the Muslim voices were, were being recruited and recuperated to also as a kind of a vaccine against radicalization to demonstrate to the Islamists um, as represented by Al-Qaeda and other Islamist organizations that actually Western society wasn't um, against Islam. It brought good Muslims in them. And I don't know if you know, at that, that time there were a number of, um, you know, Muslim journalists and commentators 
who would often say something like, um, to be, you know, to a, a real, a true Muslim, the true is, is someone who is, is a true Muslim country, is a country like Denmark or a country like, uh, you know, any of the Scandinavian countries because you have the liberty to have your religion and faith and all of these things. So there was part of that moment there where you were including um, selected Muslim representation. Yeah, in, in fact, Europe and, and, and the U.S. is the very fulfillment of what the teleology yeah. of, of, of yeah. a good Muslim society in Islam. Yes. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And that teleology was, was, you know, as a kind of, one way we could see it as a kind of a response to the idea of these as being Islamophobic um, powers. I think partly is also driven by the same narrative that drove, drove many of the commanders, because again, varying in different locations, many of the people who arrive and are, and there's, you know, so especially in the United States, as a kind of fulfillment of the telos of Islam, they could practice their religion, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, in their own way, etc. So for them, the securitization and the racialization, uh, which they understood as simply being uh, consequence of 9-11 was a terrible uh, wake-up call in a way. Um, you know, people who were so keen to get into Harvard Law School found that they had to basically use their legal skills to try and ensure justice for their cousins who had been entrapped by various counter-extremism, counter-violent measures and and, you know, schemes of entrapment and, 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 and incorporation into this machine of the anti-terror, uh, the war, uh, anti-terror machine. So I think there was a large aspect of that. I think subsequently, and the high point in many of those tendencies, I suppose, was partly to do with the Corbyn project. In a way, uh, Jeremy Corbyn represented, even, you know, uh, at the height, at least in, you know, recent memory within the kind of European political ferment of a positionality which encapsulated that in its sharpest form. I mean, his, his, his um, championing of uh, justice for the Palestinian people based on a continued understanding of racism and colonialism and apartheid as, a, as being connected with each other, um, I think represented that. What you've had since then is this kind, what I've talked to, you know, I talk about as neo-nationalism, and it's often presented as, um, as kind of a nativist reaction, or it's given these kind of euphemisms. But certainly in, 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 in uh, European uh, societies and North America, there is a fundamental crisis of whiteness, a loss of white privilege is seen not as an achievement of justice, but seen as a, a kind of regulation and overthrowing of the natural order. And, and I think that, you know, we see that in France, we see that in, 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 in behind Trump, and we see that um, in, the, you know, in the United Kingdom and, and in Belgium and all these places there is this thing that the world is no longer centered on the West. And the process of decolonization now is being experienced in the metropole. And it's been experienced at a kind of visceral level, um, on the day-to-day -day level. So I think 
part of what I would say to you is this, that while there was this um, intrusion of the Muslim representative, Muslim representative in the kind of spaces which were um, of public representation, it was not the same as a epistemological or a cultural breaking free of reconfiguring a different kind of cultural conversation than it had already that was taking place. Um, one of the odd things is this: there was a fierce debate between Ahmed um, Safi and Aaron Hughes about many things, but part of it was Safi's view that the recruitment of more and more Muslims into doctoral programs in elite American universities would undo centuries of Orientalism. What I've argued, and what I'm arguing in my new book, that, well, what it probably does is produce tenured Turkopoles as much as it does anything else. Because much of that recruitment doesn't take into account that there was no systemic political mobilization which was working to refashion that political community to be inclusive of Muslimness rather than a dilution of Muslimness as a point of entry. So in many ways, what you said earlier about the Soviet model about how you demonstrate your modernity is by discarding your Muslimness. I think you can see some of that there. And I think what has happened since then, that process has become more and more intense, partly because, um, you know, uh, there has been no ability to put together a counter-hegemonic narrative to neoliberalism. If you remember the crisis of 2008, everyone said neoliberalism is dead and we will have a return to social democracy. In nearly every single case, you've seen the destruction of social democratic parties because the social democratic parties were part of that neoliberal project and they did not offer anything. And you see, and the, you know, one of the largest differences was probably the Corbyn project and it had its own um, challenges. Uh, we can go into that. So when you look at it in that way, um, I kind of accept this, but some of the things which are being done to Muslims now are radicalization of the reconfiguration uh, of the liberal state, the liberal um, relationship. Think about what Macron is doing. Um, you know, in the name of secularism, he is destroying secularism because he's making the state intervene in there. Uh, many people outside Australia don't know this, but many, many Aboriginal settlements in the Northern Territories live technically under martial law. And it seems to me that many, many Muslim communities throughout the world now are living in under martial law, um, a state of exception or this kind of militarization or securitization of that. And the, one of the ideas, were, well, the liberal inheritance is so deep and so embedded, it could never happen here. 
And this is what, you know, and when things were happening like this in, let's say, Austria, people just sort of, A, Austria was small, it was, you know, strange things happened there after all, you know, it wasn't that central. And what is being done here is by Macron, who was never considered to be by the um, liberal establishment a Trump-like figure. He wasn't considered to be a neo-nationalist. He wasn't considered to be a white supremacist. He was considered not exactly of the left, but he was part of the strong liberal tendency. But what you are seeing with that project is how far it can go before it meets a challenge. So rather than deal with Islamophobia, they he will ban organizations which fight Islamophobia. Now, you could say, well, this is uh, one of the kind of Gallic excesses that they come to time to time. But that's not very different from what we see in, in, in places like the United States or, or in Britain, where um, it is more heinous to accuse someone of racism than for, to deal with the question of racism. Yeah. So I think we are in this moment... Um, where Muslimness faces incredible challenges. And while there is a, a convergence of global interventions around the regulation of Muslimness, including you know, Abu Dhabi, Riyadh, Paris, Beijing, you know, you can multiply these examples um, many, many times over. There doesn't seem to be any countervailing, coordinated or convergent anti-Islamophobia front. And as a consequence, these individuated interventions keep pushing back what is possible. I'm reminded of the um, book that Edward Said um, put together, and I remember just the title of it and the kind of reference to the poem, and it was a reference to the, um, the tragedy of the Palestinian people, and it was called After the Last Sky. And I think there's a line in the poem which says, you know, where do the birds fly after the last sky? And what you're seeing, perhaps, is the Palestinianization of Muslimness. Now, Goldberg talked about racial Palestinianization as one of the kind of futures there, but he talked about it in a more general term, and, and I think. But precisely right now, the contentions around Islamophobia, the convergence of interests around some of these issues which have been, um, you know, locked into the um, conflict for Palestinian justice, I think is moving towards a way that, in a sense, Muslimness is defined by being this Palestinianization. And by Palestinianization, I mean becoming the Uyghurization, the Rohingyaization, the Kashmiriization. Uh, you know, you can multiply these examples. So the question is this that if these kind, if Islamophobia takes on this particular shape in France, then where will it 
stop. What are the limits? What is the, one of the things that Trump achieved was open the horizon of what could be done, which had only been restrained by some kind of convention. And that, it seems to me, is the real challenge there, that we are facing an Islamophobia without limits. So when, for example, you hear rumors and uh, that there are plans to set up internment camps inside France, as reported by TRT, um, for those who are not guilty of crimes, but maybe guilty of thinking radical thoughts or radicalization, and we've looked at them over there. And this is being done in Europe, which nearly 70 years ago proclaimed never again, and never in its name. I think that's a very sobering thought. And ultimately for me, what matters with all this talk about the definition of Islamophobia is whether it helps to fight against Islamophobia is the best test of this um, understanding. And it's only by empowering as many people as we can, Muslim and non-Muslim, that there's a chance at holding Islamophobia at bay. Because as we've said in this talk, Islamophobia isn't just about damaging, harming life chances of Muslims. It's about reconfiguring the fundamental relationship between rulers and ruled. And if you eradicate the signifiers of transnationality and the signifiers of this kind of distinction between public and private life, you then impoverish what it means to be human. And I think that's perhaps the struggle for Islamophobia. We started out by saying that this was uh, 10 years after the publication of Thinking Through, a moment for taking stock. Where have we traveled with the thinking around the book and where do we find ourselves in terms of the actual playing out of Islamophobia in the world? And I think that the sobering thought with which you ended is exactly what uh, this conversation was designed to bring to the fore. And I guess that though daunting as it may be, it is a sobering call to engage with why it is worth investing in all the tools available to us to combat it. And if that begins at this particular moment, at this particular place, in this particular context with hanging on to elements of a definition that are fit for purpose, then that's exactly why having been somewhat skeptical of definitions, we find ourselves at this point saying that it is worth deploying. On that note, thank you very much, Dr. Queen Vakil. You've been listening to In Conversation from Network Reorient, exploring the post-Western, reconnecting the Islamosphere in all good radio stations all around the world.
This is another episode of In Conversation, brought to you by Network Reorient, the podcast arm of Critical Muslim Studies. Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes and please leave a like and a rating.